Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. In this episode, we have a very special guest, Jennifer Hillman of Georgetown Law School, whose experience basically makes her the ultimate expert on U.S. trade. In the 1990s, she was the general counsel in the office of the U.S. trade representative, the top lawyer for the U.S.'s top trade lawyer. In the early 2000s, she was a commissioner of the U.S. International Trade Commission, or the ITC. Then she was a member of the WTO's appellate body, basically the Supreme Court of the WTO's dispute settlement system. She's pretty awesome. So loyal listeners will remember from episode three way back that we've been waiting on tenterhooks for the Trump administration to follow through with its long-term threat to impose trade restrictions on imports of steel and aluminum. And on February 16th, we were put out of our misery, kind of. The Commerce Department released its reports finding that imports of both metals are a threat to America's national security. And its recommendations were for pretty big trade restrictions, hefty tariffs on potentially all of America's trading partners. On steel, they wanted to cut imports by the equivalent of 12% of America's demand. That is a big cut. And it would leave the country's hit pretty annoyed. So Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so Chad, let's walk through the options. Just kind of how big are these things? So the Commerce Department laid out three potential options for each type of metal. The first two were basically quantitative restrictions or quotas and tariffs. And those were supposed to be applied on a potentially non-discriminatory basis, so hitting all trading partners uh, based on what their historical exports of either steel or aluminum to the U.S. market were, or a pretty big tariff. So what they basically did is they decided this is the amount of capacity utilization that we want the U.S. steel industry to be able to achieve. We want the U.S. steel industry to be able to operate at about 80% of what what its general capacity is. So what would the quotas or the tariffs be in order to achieve that. For steel, the tariff was 24%. For aluminum, it was 7.7%. Or for each industry, they also offered a third option, which was to say, let's really focus on the the steel producers that are causing problems, the aluminum producers that are causing problems, and let's only hit them with really big tariffs. In the steel case, it was 53%. In the aluminum case, it was 23.6%. And then everybody else, all those countries that aren't causing problems, they get to export basically what they exported to the United States last year. Jennifer, how big are these restrictions? Well, I think they're very, very significant. I would say particularly on the steel side, uh, where the blanket tariff, if that's the option chosen, is 24%. That is quite a big tariff, uh, particularly when steel trades in many of the specialty products at thousands of dollars a ton. To add 24% to that number is quite significant. If, on the other hand, the president chooses the quota option, um, the quota, if it was done across the board, is supposed to be at 63% of the 2017 levels of trade, meaning you're cutting out 37% of all of the imports that came in last year, which means you're cutting imports down to a level of imports we haven't seen since 2010. I mean, far below what it's been in recent years. What was the most kind of immediately striking thing about these reports, this whole process? 
To me, the most striking thing was what is the point of a national security investigation? In the past, it's been pretty clear that the decisions to invoke this law were based on the notion that the United States should not be overly reliant on imports from countries that we consider to be in some way untrustworthy or potentially adversarial. And yet you've come down in this case, for example, of steel, a product in which imports account for, in the flat rolled area, about 20% of total volume sold in the United States, so not a significant reliance on imports. And then if we look at where do we import this steel from, our number one source of supply is Canada, followed by Europe, followed by Japan and Mexico, certainly not countries that we would typically put on the list of um, adversarial or somehow untrustworthy trading partners. So a little bit striking, particularly in the area of steel, um, that you nonetheless come to the conclusion that the United States is threatened, um, its national security is threatened uh, by imports of steel. The other thing that was striking, at least to me, is that the case on aluminum from a national security perspective looks actually quite different. Because I think on the aluminum side, you can honestly say that the United States is heavily dependent on imports. Imports are more than 75, 80 percent, if not 90 um, in some areas of aluminum. We have a very limited number of smelters, particularly that can make aerospace-grade aluminum. And our import sources are, yes, Canada, um, not an adversarial or untrustworthy um, source, but also China and Russia. So to me, from a national security case, the, the case for aluminum could be at least somewhat stronger. The case for steel, not very strong at all. And yet the remedies are just the opposite. The remedy on steel is quite strong, 24% tariff or 63% quota, whereas the tariff on aluminum would be 7.7%, much smaller. Again, if there was a blanket quote, it's at 86.7%. So to me, a very big divergence between the point of doing a national security investigation versus the remedy that's being proposed. I'm assuming you, as well as uh, Chad and I, had the pleasure of reading these wonderful documents over your um, bank holiday weekend. Um, was there anything in those documents that kind of struck you, uh, perhaps compared to other similar investigations um, into these commodities? Yes. Um, I was a member of the International Trade Commission the last time we did a major investigation of steel, which was a safeguards investigation done in 2001. And it is very striking, the distinction in process. Just for example, uh, when the steel case was done at the ITC, the first thing the commission did was to make it very clear what was the scope of the investigation, which steel products were included and which were not. The second thing the ITC then did is to gather a lot of facts, sending out literally thousands of questionnaires to producers, to importers, to consumers, to the broad array of people connected with steel to make sure we understood all of the numbers. How much of what do we produce where? How much is imported from whom and for what purpose? Third thing we did is conduct significant hearings in which everybody um, who was interested in the case was involved. The hearings took nine days in time. Uh, they were sort of averaging eight or nine hours in length. They included both pre-hearing briefs and post-hearing briefs in which everybody interested in the process could engage in both all of the data that was made available to everybody and in responding to all of the questions that we had. Compare that to what happened in this Steel 232 investigation. There were no questionnaires sent out to anyone. The hearing lasted three hours. There were two questions asked in total at the entire hearing, and there were no post-hearing briefs. 
similar process on the aluminum side. In essence, very, very little. So what you see in these reports is basically a repeat of everything that those that submitted comments said with very little independent data and a heavy, heavy reliance on certain economic modeling. I noticed the same thing. It wasn't until I actually was able to open up this 250-page document for steel and the similar size one for aluminum that I had any idea of what they were actually talking about, the scope of products when they said the steel industry or the aluminum industry, what it was that they actually meant. I was thinking that it could actually be a lot more narrow or it could potentially be a lot broader. And that's very, very different from how it works in the other trade law processes. So what did you notice about the the different scopes of products that they were looking into here, Jennifer? Well, again, when you think about it in a trade remedy context, most of the time trade remedies are quite precise. Hot rolled sheet steel of a certain dimension with a certain amount of alloys. So the products are specific and tailored and everybody knows exactly what's involved in a given investigation. In this case, um, all that was said was steel which can cover everything from fairly raw steel, billets, blooms, and slabs that are fairly unfinished, all the way down to the most sophisticated, you know, highly rolled, coated, um, formed, finished, tubular products, grain-oriented steels that are used in generators. It could have covered the whole array. It could cover stainless and carbon steel. You simply did not know until the reports came out on Friday how broad the scope was, And what I think we do know now is it's quite a broad scope in steel, although there are clearly some of the tariff lines that are included within the steel chapters that have been excluded. I think it it was striking to me that, that, you know, early on in the report, they, they did set out the scope. They said these are the tariff lines that are included. But then actually for most of the report, they were still referring to steel as as this broad thing. It wasn't clear that you know, when talking about uh, the import penetration or the kind of the, the bigger problems that they were really thinking in much detail about these specific steel products and which ones were being, you know, hurt more than others. And this potential 24% tariff or the quota that's going to restrict imports by 37% applies to all of these products. It, there's no differentiation. There's no variation across the different subspecialties of, of the steel products. I think that's very important also. Is that unusual? Yes, um, particularly I would say because the needs are very different. If you look at things like raw steel, billets, bloom, slabs, there is a significant need for those even by U.S. steel producers. If they do not have the capacity to produce that raw steel themselves, they may need to import those products in order to then turn it into a more finished steel product. So normally when you think about this, you're trying to tailor any kind of an import restriction on um, the products that are A, made in the United States and B, that have some relationship in terms of injuring or potentially harming the producers that are making that same product. So you're tending to want to make sure you're marrying up any import restrictions with your domestic production. This did not happen in this case. Now, they say that there's a possibility that they will run an exclusions process by which they will then go back in and ask um, across the board, is this a product that should be covered by the scope? So we go into it with the remedy covering everything. And then, again, there's at least the possibility that they will run a process whereby certain particular products are excluded from the remedy. 
So that invites, I guess, a couple of problems. One, so the report also mentioned that any new exclusion would have to be sort of adjusted elsewhere with a higher tariff on other products to maintain the same overall level of protection. So some poor economist somewhere is going to have to calculate, you know, how much do we now need to raise the tariffs on other things? But then there's also just the, the practicality of processing all of these exclusions. And this was done, again, in the, in the last time a broad, across-the-board restraint was put on steel. It was done in the course of this safeguards investigation in 2001. And at that time, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office ran a very extensive exclusions process, whereby they would, again, put out public notices of exactly what product was being proposed for an exclusion and allow everybody interested in that to comment on is this product made in the United States or not? Because that was the basic criteria of if it's not available in commercially significant quantities in the United States, then it's at least eligible for consideration. The problem is, to a large extent, the U.S. steel industry argument is always, okay, we may not be making it now, but we could make it. And we would make it if the price were high enough. And therefore, the USTR has to judge whether or not to grant that exclusion and allow the imports to come in or to say no and allow the domestic industry to, to try to get back into or get into the business of producing a product that had not been making in the beginning. And in the end of the day, in the, in the 201 process, it resulted in hundreds, hundreds of exclusions. Uh, but the process took many, many months. So they're giving, I think, 90 days uh, as a time limit to process any individual request. Yeah, that's what they're saying now, though if I remember correctly, back from 2001, 2002, that's what happened initially. And then the exclusion petitions, they realized they had so many of these things coming in, they did them in waves. It's going to end up creating a whole other layer of bureaucracy and staff and, and legal fees involved in this process that are going to make it uh, even more challenging. Can we go back to the question, though, of the, the bigger sets of uh, import restrictions? So let's talk maybe a little bit about the difference between a tariff and a quota. So. Let's let's have you put on your ITC commissioner hat again, Jennifer, and, and tell us about when commissioners are thinking about the differences in these kinds of policies. I'm not saying that's what happened here, but how do you think about that? What's the, what are the different types of uh, incentives that you have in mind? Well, as a general rule, I think most people would consider quotas to be more binding, more restraining, but it obviously depends on at what level you set the quota. Obviously, if you set it really high, it doesn't have much of a binding effect. But as a general rule, you think of quotas as more binding, in part because you can't get around them. I mean, once you've hit that limit, um, it doesn't matter how much you're willing to pay. It doesn't matter how desperately you need to bring in the import. If the quota's full, the quota's full, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so in that sense, it ends up being much more restraining. Whereas a tariff largely is seen as having a more substantial price effect rather than a quantity effect. Again, it depends on how high the tariff level is set. But, for example, in this instance of a 7.7% tariff on aluminum, if you really need to import that aluminum, you simply pay the 7.7% and try to pass along those additional costs to the extent that you can. So going back to the issue of the quota, so as an economist, um, we tend to like tariffs because if you're going to do import protection of one sort or another, it's slightly more efficient. Because with quotas, you have to make the secondary decision of how you're going to allocate who gets what under the quota. So how has that worked in the past? What do you think they're thinking about here? What are the, the potential problems that might arise? 
Again, it, it really does matter how they're going to implement a quota if they do it. Some quotas in the past have been done literally on a first-come, first-served basis. Whoever gets in the door first gets the quota. When it's full, it's full, and no more can come in. And on the other hand, we've obviously had, as many other countries have had, past experience with much more complicated quotas. Part of my past history was administering the quota system in covering textile and clothing products, where the quotas were both country-specific and very product-specific. So you had a given quota on, you know, cotton men's shirts and a separate quota on women's cotton shirts and a separate quota on women's man-made fiber, polyester shorts, etc. And so the quotas were both quite precise in terms of what did they cover and quite precise on the country. And it involved a very complex mechanism and very difficult efforts to maintain it and important needs to create flexibilities where you could move quota from some of the unused places into the places where there was greater demand for the quota and a monitoring system so that all of the importers knew coming up to October, November, or December, whenever the the timing was, whether or not the quotas were going to be full or not. And you had a lot of gaming on the other side where everybody is rushing uh, to come in the door early on to make sure they're going to get in uh, before the quota is closed. From an economist perspective, we think about the tariff. We also have to think about the tariff revenue that's collected. And we're talking about potentially billions of dollars of government revenue here. So a 24% tariff on, say, $25 billion of steel imports, that's about $6 billion of tax revenue. If it's a tariff, the government gets to keep that $6 billion of tax revenue. But if it's a quota, there's the question of who gets the equivalent of that $6 billion. Now, if the government auctioned off the quota, then the government, just like a tariff, would be able to keep the revenue. But if they don't set up a system to allocate the quota that way and they just let the foreign governments allocate the quota, well, then the foreign governments, the foreigners, get to keep the equivalent of that $6 billion. So the system of actually allocating the quota is economically quite important also in this case. And traditionally, the United States has not auctioned the quotas. It has allowed the foreign governments uh, to do the quota allocations as they see fit. And yes, you are correct. Um, in, in, you know, in the olden days in the textile world, there were literally people that were referred to as quota farmers um, that did not actually produce anything, but they made their living in the buying and selling of quota. Uh, so, yes, all of those revenues, if you will, from, from the quotas would remain in the exporting countries. Let's talk about the hybrid option where some countries are being picked out for tougher treatment. It doesn't seem it seems fairly discriminatory. Could that pose any problems down the line? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I mean, sort of two things interesting to note on the steel side, for example. So they've recommended, the recommendation is for a 53% tariff on 12 countries, Brazil, Korea, Russia, Turkey, India, Vietnam, China, Thailand, South Africa, etc. Two points about it. One is it's not the top exporters to the United States. So it isn't as though they've simply looked at who were the top sources of steel and said, we're going to put extra high duties on those that are sending the most into the United States, because that's what we're worried about, because they've left out Canada, Mexico, Japan, Germany, the Netherlands, that are among the top actual sources of steel imports. I think there was a hint in the report that they were doing it according to which countries had seen the largest increase in their exports to the U.S. So I think this is a really good question. There were hints about what they were doing. That might have been it. I read it also as they're worried about this underlying problem of overcapacity. And so clearly China's on the list for that reason. There's other countries that have been expanding capacity over the last couple of years. 
they weren't yes. super clear about what what you did to get you as one of those twelve countries, and the fact that Costa Rica was one of those twelve countries too was a little or bit Egypt or Egypt, right? So, what do you make of this? Well. First of all, on a legal basis, what you make of it is it's a complete violation of the principle called most favored nation, which really means you cannot discriminate as between one member of the WTO versus another member of the WTO. It's simply not permitted under the WTO rules. So what they've done here by saying these countries um, are going to have a higher duty than everybody else is without a doubt a violation of our WTO obligations. And I suppose what the U.S. might do if they were challenged at the WTO is they might say, well, look, there's an exemption for national security. We can do what we want. Again, I would assume that that is going to be the basis of the United States' challenge, and it will raise very hard problems for the WTO. There is a provision within the GATT, Article 21 of the GATT, that says, yes, you can break various of your GATT commitments, including your tariff commitments and your most favored nation commitment, if you are doing it for national security problems, national security reasons. The issue for the WTO will become should they accept this United States argument um, that they're doing this for national security purposes? Because as you see in this report, they have to some degree redefined national security as including the concept of economic security. If you allow that and you say, okay, United States, yes, you may go ahead and impose these discriminatory tariffs or these quotas, even though they violate all of your other WTO obligations, we accept your argument that you're doing this for national security purposes. Everybody else in the world can impose also tariffs and quotas for any reason that they say is essential to their economic security. And every country has products or industries that they can claim are just as important to them as steel or aluminum are to the United States. You are opening the door for everyone in the world to engage in similar behavior. And on the other hand, if the WTO says no, United States, this is not meeting the terms of Article 21, the concern is that the United States will react very negatively and say, you know, who are you, WTO, to tell us what is in our national security interest? And Article 21 itself says it is up to the member invoking it to judge. It is, in other words, self-judging. If you say it's in your national security interest, that's the way Article 21 reads, that it is self-judging and the WTO were to go ahead anyway and condemn the United States, I think it would be a real push for the United States to say, okay, fine, we're, we're going to withdraw from the WTO. We're certainly not adhere to this particular decision because we think the WTO has overstepped its bounds and overreached in second-guessing what is in our national security. I had another thought when thinking about this sort of discriminatory uh, compromise solution where maybe you spare your allies like the EU and Canada, which is that they might still be really, really annoyed if your really harsh trade restrictions on some countries essentially diverts their exports into your markets. And then I suppose the danger would be that you essentially launch a second round of trade protection where people like the EU say, oh dear, none of those countries can get their stuff into America and so they're going to flood our markets and we need to raise our trade barriers. And that's exactly what we saw back in 2002, right after the United States did its safeguard on steel products. The European Union, China, a number of other countries basically imposed the the mirror image set of import restrictions, basically worried about steel coming into their market for, for that purpose. 
And I think that kind of diversion is what you see often and what does create huge problems for everyone else. So even if this option of putting high tariffs on certain countries, I think it is highly likely that everyone else will still complain. Even if that's done, um, these combinations still include a quota such that all of the rest of the world that's not subject to the high tariffs would still be limited in the volume that they could send. So they would still have the right to complain on their own that a quota was being imposed on them in violation of the WTO rules that say you may not impose quotas. And secondly, they would have this trade diversion complaint. Let's talk through the likely winners and losers from these proposed actions. And as we're recording this podcast... President Trump has not yet decided to do anything. Who wins in this, at least in the initial go, obviously will be the domestic producers of steel and aluminum uh, because they will be faced with less import competition. I mean, that's just straight up. There will be less imports. uh, So the domestic steel industry should be able to both raise its prices and increase its output uh, because they will gain on both the volume side and on the price side. And similarly, um, the aluminum industry as well. So those are the initial winners, is, is the domestic producers of these products. Some of them may not win as much as they might you might think, if they also need access to imports. Because again, even the steel industry itself also needs access um, to imports. So whether or not they can safely manage that supply and demand um, will will depend, but they will be the initial winners. Can we talk a little bit about the different types of companies within the U.S. steel industry. Can you describe those? Yeah, again, and historically, you've always had a bit of a split between uh, what people refer to as the blast oxygen furnace or the integrated mills um, that are the companies that were are making steel by the original process by which you take coke and iron ore and blast oxygen into it to reduce the iron and ultimately make steel. Um, and that is one whole set of companies um, that... That's the, those are the old... Guys well, they, that have they're been doing this for hundreds of years. Correct, correct. And what's and how is that different from the sorry? Okay, and the, the newer and the newer companies use what is refer are what is referred to as an electric arc mini mill, and what they are fun- fundamentally doing is taking large amounts of already made steel, in other words, scrap steel, and putting it into a large vat and effectively putting a lightning bolt into it in order to melt it and recast that steel. So they have to start with already made steel. So somebody has got to be doing that blast oxygen furnace process in order to create the scrap that the electric arc mini mills use in order to make their product. The degree of overlap and competition between them used to be fairly limited because when the electric arc mini mill process first came on stream, it was almost entirely relegated to producing long products. But over time, as the technology has gotten better and better, the electric arc mini mills are now able to make a very broad array of flat and long and ultimately tubular products just like the blast oxygen furnaces. And the sort of ups and downs of the two industries heavily depend on the price of scrap. So when the price of scrap is low, the electric arc mini mills are more competitive um, than the blast oxygen furnace uh, integrated producers. Um, And when the price of scrap is high, um, the competitive relationship between the two changes. So in the report, there were, you know, jaw-dropping numbers about the decline in employment in the steel industry. And 
my question was how much of the employment drop and the kind of the squeeze in their margins was because of technological change, then becoming more efficient, and and how much of the the pressure was from these these mini mills um, that were suddenly competing in a way that they hadn't been before. Well, obviously, a huge amount of the change in employment is due to technology change. Uh, The mills, both on the integrated side and on the mini-mill side, simply operate with far, far fewer employees than they ever did. If you go into a modern steel mill today, you see almost no workers on the floor, in and around that very hot uh, blast oxygen furnace. There is long gone are the days of actually watching you know, sort of things being dumped directly in. Uh, It is all done uh, by computers. It is all very carefully monitored. um, But there is not as many, by any stretch of the imagination, as many workers in and around the production of steel. And if you look at just the raw numbers in terms of how much steel is produced per man hour of employment, you see these huge productivity gains uh, that we've seen over the the last 10, 20 years. Okay, so the tariffs or quotas will probably lead to higher prices. Uh, This may benefit the steel producing firms. It may not lead to a lot of additional jobs because of technology. Can we talk a little bit about who the likely losers um, from these? Well, clearly, though, clearly those that will suffer the most from this are those that consume these products. So, you know, on the steel side, that's a huge array. I mean, autos, you know, any kind of farm equipment, any any products that use a significant amount of steel are going to be paying a lot more for their steel. So all of the downstream industries, and again, in steel, the number of downstream industries is huge, uh, will be paying more. On the aluminum side, again, it's aircraft industry, but it's also, you know, beverage cans, et cetera, that use aluminum. Uh, and again, a broad array of machines and tools that are that are heavily dependent on the aluminum industry. And so we saw that if, if you read to the very end of the report, there are these annexes that include some of the testimony and presentations. Uh, one of my favorites is from the Beer Institute, being very worried about the price of beer cans because of uh, because of aluminum. But also, presumably, this would affect uh, infrastructure projects and roads and bridges. And if the president hopes to roll out a brand new hundreds of billions of dollar infrastructure plan. This is costly for the American taxpayer as well. Uh, Obviously, uh, what portion of the cost of a beer can is aluminum is quite high. What portion of the cost of a car is steel depends on the car, but it can be quite high. What portion of the cost of building a road um, is steel is not so much. It's more related to the amount of rebar. What portion of the cost of building a bridge is related to steel? That can be very high. Surely, you know, it's not just the steel consumers who are going to be hurt. Correct. It is highly likely, I would say, that many of the countries that feel they are being targeted here um, or whose whose exports to the United States are being harmed are going to bring either direct trade actions at the WTO or bringing retaliatory actions against U.S. exports coming into their countries in the form of anti-dumping or countervailing duty cases, safeguards cases. So I would expect the entire world to react to this because it is affecting markets across the world and it's affecting many of our trading partners. And can I just check the legality of an immediate retaliation? Under the rules of the WTO, you are supposed to have the WTO process adjudicate whether or not there has or has not been a violation. So those countries that are living under the WTO rule system should wait until the WTO has reached a decision as to whether or not what the United States has done is a violation or not before they take retaliatory action. However, 
many of them may very well take their own separate actions, their own separate safeguards or their own separate anti-dumping or countervailing duty determinations, which they can do on their own without authorization from the WTO. Um, They are certainly well within their rights to do that, and I would actually expect many of them to do so. Or they might start their own national security investigation. China might say, uh, the United States, we import $12 billion a year of soybeans from you, and we're relying on you for our food source. That's a threat to our national security. Maybe we need to deal with that somehow. So this is a potentially really big concern. Well, obviously, one of the many products that countries tend to go after in terms of retaliation is agriculture because the United States is such a significant exporter of many agricultural products into the very markets that are going to be the most disrupted um, by these potential tariffs or quotas. So one question I want to get to is, what is the underlying problem here that we're trying to solve, that President Trump is trying to solve with this action? And is this type of policy actually going to solve it? The underlying problem is a very real one, which is there is significant overcapacity in the world to produce both steel and aluminum. And the lion's share of that overcapacity is coming out of China. China simply added far, far more capacity to produce both steel and aluminum than it ever should have um, and that is economically justified or that the world needs. So the, the administration is correct that there is a huge overhang in overcapacity, particularly in China that must be addressed somehow because it is harming everyone in the world that produces these products. And it's been done on the backs of significant subsidies granted throughout the Chinese economy to overproduce. The problem is how to get at it. And it's not clear to me that a U.S. action um, that, again, targets our market, so it's really only focused on imports that are coming into our market, is going to be able to solve a problem that is a global problem and where China has the ability to shift its aluminum and steel into all of these other markets that are then going to start complaining themselves about the amount of Chinese steel and aluminum coming into their markets. So any form of unilateral action by the United States will not solve the problem unless it serves as a catalyst to try to get everybody back to the table to talk about how to reduce and restrain overcapacity in China and other places. I think we are nearing the end Jennifer, any final thoughts? Well, part of my reaction to this 232 is how much we are in uncharted waters. Again, the, the law itself is very unusual. It has been over 30 years since the last time Section 232 was used to actually put uh, restrictions on imports. And all of the past cases have been much more in this narrow field of is the United States overly reliant on imports from untrustworthy or adversarial sources. We're now in a very different realm where the Trump administration is prepared to interpret national security as including economic security. And that puts us in a very different place than we've ever been before. And I think one in which we need to be really cautious about what's the right response, uh, particularly what is the right unilateral response when we know that the mere imposition of any tariffs or quotas in this is a violation of our WTO obligations. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thanks, Jennifer. Most welcome. That is all for Trade Talks. So thank you to the Trump administration for providing the subject matter for this episode. If you have any comments, queries, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, then do get in touch. I'm at Chad Bowne. And you can reach us on Twitter on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's at trade underscore underscore talks. 
because when it comes to really harsh trade barrier recommendations, one just wasn't enough. So you have both the tariff and the quota, but then even the one with the tariff also has the quota. And then there was the draconian 53%. So listeners can't see, but I'm just looking at Chad really disappointingly. 